0: Visiting a city for the first time and not sure what to do? A walking tour is a great place to start. Top Dog Tours is in Boston, Toronto, Philadelphia, and New York City. To book a walking tour, you can visit us at topdogtours.com and be sure to check out our social media accounts for offers and discounts. Hi, this is Nicole Kelly with She Brew in the City. And today we are interviewing me to give you all listening a chance to know a little bit about my background and the things that I'm passionate about. Today with me is my husband and producer and sound editor, Patrick Kelly. So he's going to be asking me some questions.
1: Hello. I'm excited to be on this side of the mic.
0: <laughs> maybe, be fun. maybe learn something new after. I, I know. Many, I, many, many I years. think this
1: is going to be our first episode, but we've been recording a lot of these out of order. So. It's kind of fun to turn the tables on you. Yeah, be the
0: one interviewing. I know, I feel weird because I don't have the questions in front of me.
1: Uh, You know, it's kind of funny about doing these questions. I feel like I know you so well. Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to be asking a lot of these questions I semi-already know the answer Yeah, so it's weird. But at the same time, maybe I don't know fully the answer because some of these questions are a little more, I don't know, I think personal to what your faith is and what your... Uh, beliefs are. And
0: I think there's some things that I do that I don't think you know. So I think you might be surprised. Maybe. Maybe.
1: Yeah. So tell me a bit about your Jewish upbringing.
0: So I feel like this is now a trope that I've heard a lot. I was raised conservative, but we weren't religious, which makes absolutely no sense. But I've heard several other people kind of introduce their Judaism that way. So I'm originally from Los Angeles. I'm from the San Fernando Valley, though I've worked very hard not to sound like I'm from the Valley. So it may not sound like I'm actually from the Valley. For those of you that are familiar with the area, my parents live very close to CSUN. Um, So we were members of a conservative synagogue that my family had been in some capacity members of since the 1970s, so about 20 years or so. And my mother was fairly active in my preschool. I attended Jewish preschool. I was basically in some sort of Hebrew school from kindergarten until I was about 15. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't keep kosher growing up. And my great aunt, who I'm sure will come up a lot when we're talking about kind of my family's history was kind of the Jewish matriarch. And we spent a lot of holidays at her house. So a lot of my memories attached to Judaism during my childhood are related to her and my great uncle who unfortunately has passed away. I'm still very close with my great aunt so, yeah, I I wouldn't say that I, we were very religious growing up. We, you know, celebrated kind of the main holidays at our house, like Hanukkah. And um, we would obviously do Passover and Breaking Fast and Rosh Hashanah dinner. But kind of the, I, though I don't consider the minor holidays now, like Sukkot, like we never celebrate Sukkot. We would go to like a Purim carnival. But I feel like I was probably the most religious person in my family if that makes any sense. I was recently talking to my mother and I don't remember this, but she said that she used to threaten that I couldn't go to Hebrew school if I misbehaved. Clearly this is real and, or maybe she just made it up. I don't even know. But clearly I was religious to the point where I enjoyed going to Hebrew school. Whereas, whereas my sister went to socialize, we joke a lot about how I went and learned and was, you know, really believed everything. And my sister just wanted to hang out with her friends. I've said this to you before. I, I don't really think I came into, um, inter- and it kind of were interacted with people who weren't Jewish really until I started going to kindergarten. Cause that's when I left the Jewish preschool and went to secular school. So I feel like in my very, very formative years, most of the people I was coming into contact to were, with were Jewish. So being Jewish was normal and being from the San Fernando Valley, which is kind of like an enclave of Jews. I feel like being Jewish was normally when I went to secular school, I would say, you know, more than half of the kids at my day school were Jewish. So it wasn't like I was other than, I never really felt like being Jewish was something different. It was very normal. It was very accepted. I didn't really experience any anti-Semitism until I got into junior high. And even then it wasn't anything compared to what I feel like people are dealing with today. So, it I, I feel like it was it was like a pseudo-religious secular youth, if that makes any sense.
1: Do you have a strong memory of when you were othered for the first time, where you felt like being Jewish meant you weren't part of the mainstream?
0: I feel like there were kids that made comments about my nose, which is kind of, um, this is pre nose job. I definitely had a nose job and I'm proud of it. Um, uh, made comments about my nose where I felt like this was the first time I was kind of being told that I was different in some capacity, but I feel like outright anti-Semitism, I didn't really experience until I was actually an adult. I remember, I remember I did that tour of music man and there was a, guy in the cast who was wearing yeah, rosary like as a necklace and I th- I remember saying something like I thought that was weird because it was a religious object and he kind of got really defensive and said what do you know you're a Jew you don't even believe in God and he said this in front of a couple other people who I considered friends and no one said anything and I felt r- that was very other I feel like that was one of the first times I felt kind of just like overtly you know, that an anti-Semitic comment was made to me. And, you know, clearly this person had no concept of Judaism or me, and I wasn't even friends with this person. I was just making like a passive comment because I didn't understand something. So I feel like that's one of the first instances that kind of stands out to me as feeling like I was other than, especially because there was someone there who was either – at least half Jewish, if not fully Jewish. I don't know how religious they were, but I knew they were Jewish in some capacity. And then someone else there who I considered a friend and no one said anything. So it it felt very alone and an isolating incident.
1: Okay. I mean, that's pretty late then. Yeah. I mean, you were well into being an adult. Yeah.
0: I mean, I like to say that I grew up in this kind of liberal, very Jewish bubble. So I feel like I was never othered You know, I feel like that's definitely something that really started when I was an adult and especially with, you know, the onset of the Internet and social media. I feel like I was much more exposed to anti-Semitism in general. I I feel like this kind this story kind of encapsulates my experience growing up with anti-semitism is I worked retail between gigs and there was an older woman who her husband had passed away and she was just really looking for something to pass the time and make a little bit of extra money and she was saying she volunteered for the ADL and I was like oh what's that and she said it's an organization that focuses on fighting anti-semitism and I remember thinking why do we need something like that this is you know 2009 or whatever year it was and I was like that doesn't exist anymore so it kind of puts into perspective how naive I was about how rampant anti-Semitism is. But it, you know, it shows kind of the area that I grew up in and the time that I grew up in and the people that I grew up with that it was very normal to be Jewish.
1: I think I saw recently uh, on a number of feeds, you know, post-October 7th, there's been, there was a gentleman, um, I'm probably going to misinterpret the story uh, just because I, I saw the video once, but he... I remember said growing up, he never felt like he ever experienced anti-Semitism, but then decided to start his own group. It was called, um, I think it's nice Jewish boy. And he basically holds these conventions or like get togethers for Jewish people, for non-Jewish people, but just people who can get together and kind of socialize and meet up and talk to each other. Um, I think it's partially maybe a dating thing. He gets a lot of like, he tries to separate so it's not all just one, a bunch of girls getting together or a bunch of guys getting together. He tries to diversify it as much as possible. Uh, But while he's been in this kind of post-October 7th world, he's been posting videos and talking about things and he wears a hat that I believe it says nice Jewish boy on it. And while he was posting a video about anti-Semitism, a person on the street confronted him (laughs) basically calling him uh, racial slurs and calling him things. And he was like almost shocked and taken aback by it in yeah. the moment that he was like, oh, oh my, I'm literally making a video about my experience with anti-Semitism and, and how exactly it's almost non-existent. This. And then somebody comes up to him abruptly on the street and, you know, basically verbally assaults him in that way.
0: I feel like the, and You know, I've been very lucky. The few instances I've experienced anti-Semitism, it is very shocking and almost jarring because a part of me is like, are you insane? You know, I I feel like we are the generation, the geriatric millennials, whose grandparents fought in World War II and we learned a lot about the Holocaust and, you know, Schindler's List was made during our formative years. So it's like, this is stuff that idiot-proof. Jew hatred is not a thing that is acceptable. So when it does happen, I feel like it is a shock. And it's, you know, I feel like what I've been seeing since October 7th, you know, I've been crying and I have stress nightmares and it's it's out of control. But I feel like growing up, I like I said, I did growing up in kind of this nice little bubble of, you know, acceptance and being proud of being Jewish and being able to display that. And, you know, my, I remember, you know, I still make fun of my mom for not wanting to say the word Hanukkah out loud in public because we'd be like at a department store and she'd be like, okay, I'll think about it for Hanukkah. And I'd like laugh at her, but, you know, having conversations with her, especially since October 7th, she's like, you know, you know where I'm coming from now. You know, my mother, you know, her her mother had to lie about being Jewish and couldn't go home early on Friday to celebrate Shabbat from work because she would have lost her job. So she's carrying that trauma that I feel like I did not have that is now again coming back.
1: No, reintroduced into... This
0: generational trauma that I've worked well, so hard to kind of get rid of. And nothing's more Jewish than that, right? Yes, generational the trauma is very of Jewish. The return
1: the same traumas over and over and over again. Uh, speaking of generational trauma in your family, <laughs> where does your family historically originally come from? I I know you you said you grew up in L.A., but what about a couple generations?
0: So if we go back to great-great-grandparents on both sides, everyone lived in the shtetl of what is now either Russia, Poland, or Ukraine. Um, My great-grandmother, my mom's grandmother, on her mother's side, so my mom's mom's mom is uh, from her paperwork from Ellis Island says that she is from Poland. However, her father's paperwork from years earlier from the same town says it was Russia. So it's kind of that border that kept on shifting depending on wars and what was going on. I don't know as much about my dad's family though. When we were at Auschwitz on, in the book of the people who were killed during the Holocaust, we did find my maiden, my maiden name, which is not very common and anyone who has it is related to me. And it said the people were from the Ukraine. So well it's now the ukraine so
1: yeah i think you know that pale of settlement poland russia it's either ukraine or belarus or yeah. you know all of these ambiguously eastern european yeah. countries that wars and drama and you know kingdoms all fought and lost territory or gained territory depending on who was ruling that generation or that week and yeah uh, changed, the
0: borders changed a lot yeah
1: i mean you it's hard to Keep records, especially from a people where records were destroyed.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's that Eastern European pale of settlement shuttle life. Like I literally had a great-grandfather who was a tailor. So, you know, when I did Fiddler on the Roof numerous times, I always felt like it was very much my family. Everyone, to my knowledge, came through Ellis Island. I have records for some relatives. The last direct relative, that great-grandmother, came in 1920. So I did not have any direct relatives who would have been in Europe during the Holocaust.
1: Mm. Do you feel like that made it more difficult for you to relate to the Holocaust? Or if when you met people who had that direct trauma in their families or in their lives, that you felt a little kind of separated from that?
0: I do feel separated in some capacity because I don't think I carry the same type of generational trauma, but I think a lot of the trauma my family carries is from what they experienced when they got to America. I also had a great grandmother who was in Russia during World War One, and I think just the general being a Jewish person in the early 20th century in Russia has kind of trickled down a little bit. I mean, we'll talk about this, but I don't think it's damaged my ability to relate to people in the, who have relatives. Who are in the Holocaust or the Holocaust in general? It's something that I'm very passionate about and know a lot about. So, um, I think I think it might give me an advantage because I'm coming at it from a non um, personal connection. I, it's not like I had a grandpa- well
1: a non direct yeah a non direct relative. I, it's not uh, like yeah. I
0: had a grandparent who was in a camp or lost a lot of family members. So, I think there's a disconnect I can have and look at it from more of a academic perspective.
1: Though, I mean, it's still personal. No, I I think it's
0: personal to anybody who is of Jewish heritage, but it's not personal in the way that I have heard stories from a relative or lost relatives.
1: So where did your family settle in the United States after they came through Ellis Island?
0: So my mom's maternal side, they all ended up in Toledo, Ohio. And I was making a joke once I was like, Jews in Toledo. Apparently, there was an uncle who worked at a tire factory and he was able to get jobs for everybody. And uh, another uncle, I don't know if it was the same uncle, at one point in the 50s visited California and said, it's much better out here. You should all come. And they all moved to Beverly Hills. My mom's dad's side, they lived in Chicago. And I'm not sure how he ended up out in in the Los Angeles area. My dad's family is very New York. My grandparents were born and raised in the South Bronx. They sounded like it. So they they clearly just walked from Ellis Island to the Bronx and just stayed there. But my dad and his parents did move out to California when he was six. Um, So that's kind of how everyone ended up out in Los Angeles.
1: Then your parents basically grew up in L.A. Yeah, yeah. So you're second generation Los Angeles. Yes, second generation
0: San Fernando Valley, I guess. So you can get specific Yeah,
1: that's exciting. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. I mean, probably in the 80s, that was an exciting place to be. It was a very exciting
0: thing when Valley Girl was a movie, and it was a trope. Encino Man. Yes, I am a fan of Encino Man.
1: It's a good movie. It's a good movie. I mean, hey, another Brendan Fraser class. I
0: know, with Polly Shore, who is Jewish. Growing up in L.A., what was that experience like? In general? Yeah, just being in L.A. um, Everyone in L.A. is involved in the industry, and I feel like that was also normal. And, you know, my father uh, is a retired television producer. My grandfather was one of the creators of Let's Make a Deal and created a lot of game shows and was in the Writers Guild. So also being up in the entertainment industry is very normal, which is very Jewish. Uh, L.A., like I like to say, is a giant suburb. So we didn't really leave the general, you know, West Valley area too much. I do feel like I was... F- <laughs> afraid of Hollywood a little bit because I knew it was kind of dangerous. And, you know, I eventually went to school there. So obviously I figured out that that wasn't real, but it was a very suburban existence idyllic in some capacities. You know, we were middle-class living in a flourishing suburb and, you know, I, I wasn't really experiencing any racism and, you know, there were, there was least overt racism. Overt racism. I wasn't experiencing it. I'm sure it obviously existed. But yeah, I think it was a good place to grow up. I feel like, though, it would be very different now.
1: Do you think growing up in L.A. led you to what your kind of wanted career path was, at least in your earlier life?
0: I don't think so. Um, I did do do children's theater and then kind of decided I didn't want to do it. I, I don't feel like the exposure to my family being in the entertainment industry had anything to do with it. I think it was their love of the arts that more encouraged that. My father, especially his love of... Um, classic films. You know, my mom likes to say that she got me interested watching old movies by showing me musicals, which is what we're doing with our daughter. She loves movie musicals. And then I kind of got into, you know, classic film and used to come home from school every day and watch TCM. And I kind of fell in love with uh, that aspect of it. It wasn't really the theater part of it that came until later when I was in high school. And I really don't think growing up, growing up in L.A., Made a difference. I feel like a lot of people who end up on Broadway, grew up in the middle of the nowhere, middle of nowhere. I feel like that's a much more common story than I grew up in New York or LA.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things tie people into wanting to pursue a career in acting or performing or anywhere in the industry, really. Um, but I, I don't know. When you're surrounded by it all the time, it might, you know, influence it. I will say, I don't know if I would naturally have been drawn into being a actor, performer, singer, if my parents weren't already involved in it and I was exposed in the way in that way. But then again, I can't imagine what my life would be or who I would be without that kind of exposure. Speaking of your family, can you share some family traditions or cherished rituals or things that your family does? It, um, like Jewish rituals? Yeah, that are Jewish that might maybe are unique to your family or are just Things that, when they come around yearly, that you kind of tie yourself to. Yeah,
0: I can kind of start with the the year cycle. So Rosh Hashanah, we always had dinner at my great aunt, great uncle's house, and obviously had apples and honey, and it was a big kind of family get together and dinner. And then, you know, a week or ten days later, however Far Yom Kippur is away, we would do the break fast. I don't really remember my parents fasting, but I did after I turned thirteen. And then stopped for a little while and they started doing it again recently. Sukkot, we didn't do anything for Sukkot. For Hanukkah, you know, being an American Jew, that was like the big holiday. So we got eight presents. And when I was younger, we would always do a big family get together at our house. And then we would also do one at my great aunt's house. And then as time went on, it would just be at my great aunt's house where the family would get together. But every other night... Um, We would get a present. And then when my sister and I got older, there would be a night where they'd take us to the mall and we got to pick out a present, which I thought was really cool. After I was out of preschool, we didn't really do anything for Purim Passover, we always had these huge seders at my great aunt's house, like 30 plus people. And there's a couple things I think that my family does differently just in general. So at Passover, normally when someone finds the and they're the one that gets a present. But at my great aunt's house, everyone got a present, including the adults. Usually it would be some sort of book possibly about Judaism for the adults, but the kids would either get money or a present of some kind. And I think that's pretty unique. There's also something my family does that I don't know if this is just my family, but traditionally you know at least at our synagogue everyone says the mourner's cottage but in my family you don't say it unless your parents have died so i don't know if this is a conservative jewish thing or just my family but for me even now i don't say it even though as a congregation we're to do it to support people who are who are observing you know mourning but i don't do it and it's just a kind of i think a reminder to me a little bit about how lucky i am that my parents are still alive because i'm most of my friends have lost at least one parent so that's something that my family does and it's different
1: any of these celebrations or unique traditions have you incorporated into your adult life or your family life
0: i i mean we do have a big holiday party which i like but it's not with you know with my extended family obviously i don't know you know we don't have large Satyrs, so i don't think i'd have the opportunity to give every guest, a gift. And we have a small apartment, so I don't know how we would hide the afikom, and I'm interested to see how that will work out when our daughter gets a little bit older. I think a lot of what I do and what we do is stuff that we've created. I, Like I said, I feel like I grew up pseudo-religious secular, so we didn't have a lot of, well, this is what we do. We do Shabbat. We do this. So there wasn't really a lot of that. I feel like a lot of the stuff we did was just very normal So there's not anything Mm -hmm. unique, I think, that I've kind of brought into our life. I think anything I do as an adult is something that I've kind of made the conscious decision to do.
1: Are you influenced then by what your family was doing before? Or is this something that you've now learned in your own Jewish studies or connecting to the synagogue that we're now going to or other things that have kind of influenced that?
0: I don't think it has anything to do with what my family did before. My mom, in particular, you know, she had a sister that passed away. So her parents kind of distanced themselves from religion. So she didn't really have anything that she did. And I think that's part of the reason we didn't do anything is there was nothing that she had that she brought to the table. And my dad's family wasn't very religious in the same way. You know, he had like, three months to to get ready for his bar mitzvah. And it was at the temple of the deaf. And we make jokes about my dad singing badly. And you know, no one I'm being able to hear. Uh, so they didn't really bring any like major traditions with them to our household. So I think that anything that I've started to implement with our daughter has been stuff that I've either always wanted to do and, you know, either felt uncomfortable asking to do it or just knew that it wasn't possible and things that I've learned about that you can do, you know, things like, hanging a mezuzah and saying the prayer for that or, you know, doing Shabbat every, every Friday and things like that, that I've always wanted to do. Obviously, like I always wanted a sukkah, but we live in a New York apartment, so that's not going to happen. Well, why, why do you think your family never celebrated Sukkot? I don't know. I feel like, you know, the high holidays were a big deal and we went to synagogue, but I, I feel like it is a major holiday, but it wasn't treated like one in my family. I'm not sure why. Like something I really always want to do is one of the things you can do is sleep outside under the sukkah. And I always wanted to do that, which, you know, is about as much camping as I'll do. Um, (laughs) But it's something, you know, we can't do. There's no room service in the sukkah. No room service in the sukkah. So I feel like that's just something, you know, we can't do in this apartment maybe someday if we ever move. Well, speaking of our child, how has your
1: relationship with Judaism changed since having a child?
0: I think it's completely changed. I think prior to her being born, I was interested in joining a synagogue and kind of finding my way back to Judaism. But since she's been born, I've been super active within the synagogue. You know, from three months on, we were doing little kid classes and they have a day school. And I knew I wanted to send her there because I feel like I wanted her to have a Jewish education. And a lot of reform synagogues. It's once a week or, you know, only a few hours a week. And I wanted it to be as thorough as the education that I had. And I thought that that was the best way to do it. I also, you know, we've started to do Shabbat on Fridays. I'm going to services on Fridays. I'm celebrating holidays I've never celebrated before and doing things like going to the march in DC and getting to know the clergy very well. I feel like I didn't really have any relationship with the clergy at the synagogue I grew up with, and I feel like maybe it's because I was a child, but now as an adult, I feel like I can communicate with these people and talk religion with them in a real way. So I would say that my relationship with Judaism has changed a lot. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm necessarily more devout. Like I still believe in God in the same way. That hasn't really changed, but I think my activeness has changed. I'm more actively a Jew.
1: Well, what role does faith and spirituality play in your everyday life? And how do you want to instill those values in our child or any future children that we have?
0: In my everyday life, I feel like recently I've thought so much about being Jewish and my faith has become a big part of it, especially in the last five weeks. But I pray every night and, you know, I, it, I use it as kind of a meditative time to center myself and communicate with God and talk about the things I want and kind of go over the day a little bit. I think in addition to, you know, sp- it personally speaking directly with God and praying, you know, the idea of tikkun olam, which is healing the world, is very big at our synagogue. And, you know, I volunteer with an organization called Days for Girls. We're going to be interviewing one of the heads of the New York chapter you know, I I try to be active in the community in some capacity and the idea of helping people out, you know, mitzvah, the the idea of, go, you know, even if it's just something small like telling somebody they dropped something or holding an elevator or complimenting someone, I feel like every day I, I do a little bit to try to go out of my day to make someone's day better. And I think that kind of stems from the idea of healing the world because even these small things that we can do can make a difference because you don't really know what someone's going through during the day and maybe you saying something nice to them makes that day better. And I, I feel like that kind of, again, goes back to my faith. But that's, again, something my mother taught me that I don't think was based in religion, like saying thank you and treating everybody the same no matter if they were a janitor or a CEO. I feel like those are kind of Jewish values that she grew up with that maybe she didn't realize were related to Judaism. And that's definitely something I want to pass off to our daughter. We live in a city with so many different types of people, and it's so easy, especially when you're living in a neighborhood like the Upper West Side, to not notice people who are not in the same socioeconomic or religious group that you are. And I think it's so important to notice these people and their worth. So I want to pass on the idea that, you know, you need it's it, it's good to be a mensch, you know, and someone even mentioned to us that she's already doing that. You know, she she's she comforting her, she's two years old, she's comforting classmates who are upset that they're being dropped off at school. So she's already doing that on her own. She's very empathetic. But I feel like the idea of community service and giving back is something I want to instill in her. I also want to instill my love of Judaism and how joyous it is. I feel like a lot of Judaism and our history is very sad. It's holidays about people trying to kill us and the Holocaust, obviously, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism. But there's a lot of things trending online right now about Jewish joy, and that's really what I want to pass on to her. Is my love of Judaism? Is my love of my heritage? Is my love of my religion?
1: How do you approach the concept of education within your family, or I guess our family?
0: Like Jewish education? Well,
1: yeah. Like, I mean, how important is education to our family?
0: I think... Again, I had a conversation with my mother about this because as I said, her parents really distanced themselves from Judaism and she didn't have any Jewish education. So she said it was very important to her that me and my sister had a Jewish education because it's something she felt like she was a little bit deprived of and she wanted us to know what we were praying about and about the holidays and that was important. And I think that that's important in the same way for our daughter. I think that we've chosen to raise her as a Jew And it's important that she knows what that means. I feel like there's a lot of people, not just Jews, who don't know enough about their culture. And I think it's important to know where you came from and who your people are. So I I think education in general plays a big part in our household. You know, I'm always reading and learning and, you know, part of our business is educating people. But I think when it comes to specifically Jewish education, it's very important to know your heritage. And I, I think that, Really learning about yourself includes learning about where you came from, you know, not just from your family, but from your people and her knowing about that is important. And the last thing I want is her to ask me, well, you, you, you had this education. Why did you deprive that? Why did you deprive me of that education? So I want her to have the same type of Jewish education I did.
1: Well, I don't even know if it's the the same type. I think what she's going to be getting is a little little more more intense intense than what you got or, you know any sort of religious education I got. I I went to a very I went to a lot of public schools, but I also was brought up in California, where the public school system, for the most part, throughout the whole state, is pretty solid. So yeah, um, it's you know it was more normal for kids in the West Coast, at least where I grew up, to go to public school to go to a public school than to yeah. a private school, where it's almost the opposite where we live now in New York.
0: Yeah, private school is very much a thing, but the choice to send you to a Jewish private school like I said, is because I want her to have that education. And also part of it, like maybe part of me wished I did go to a Jewish day school. So this is just kind of me, I hate to say vicariously living through her, but providing her with the opportunities that, you know, I wish I had because I was so interested in it. Maybe, you know, I, I wish I would have had the opportunity to delve a little more into it when I was in elementary school.
1: Speaking of your family and traditions and these things that are passed down, even just stories, what kind of lessons from your own family history have passed down to you that you've made you who
0: you are? I think, as I said before, a big part of it is giving back and treating people humanely. I think that there's a lot of families, not just Jewish families, obviously all different rights of people, that the children are not taught to treat people equally. And I feel like that's just something that my family has always done. My my grand, my father's mother's best friend was a transgender woman, and they met in the 70s. And this is something that was not very common at the time and definitely looked down upon or even taboo. You know, they used to have black people over at the house for dinner in the 60s. They were very active politically. So treating people equally was very important in his family. And I think treating people nicely was very important in my mom's family, treating people no matter where they came from or who they were as equals. So I think those are things that have definitely been brought down to me.
1: In your opinion, what do you think makes... A strong and connected Jewish family, and what efforts do you make to foster these qualities within our family? A <laughs> strong
0: and connected Jewish family. Guilt. Um, <laughs> um, no, that's not just Jews, that's a lot of other cultures as well. I think <laughs> I think a love of each other We're and, looking at
1: you Catholics.
0: I know. <laughs> you got that guilt too. I think a connection and love for each other and a respect for differences. My sister and I are very different people. And maybe the only thing that we have in in um, in common is the fact that we grew up together, but we respect each other and our different paths. And there's a love there. I think that Jewish families, you know, at least the ones I know, there's a lot of squabble. There can be disagreements, but at the end of the day, we always come back together because – you know, I think for thousands of years, all we had was family. So the family unit in Judaism is extremely important because sometimes that's all you had.
1: I know your Hebrew name has something to do with your family as well. What is your Hebrew name?
0: So my Hebrew name is Nahama Michal, which means peace and who is like God. It is after my mom's mother, Natalie, and Michal uh, being like the female form of Michael, which was her father's middle name. And my English name is Nicole Marie, same thing, Natalie, and her father's middle name, Michael.
1: Well, I know your family does like a thing about naming people
0: after Yeah, people. That's, a re- that's a really Ashkenazi thing. I know some Sephardic people will name after living people. I, I, I do know people who've done that. But in the Ashkenazi tradition, at least the people I know usually name after somebody who has passed away in a way to honor them. Like, for example, our daughter is Sherebraha, and she's named after my grandmother and my great uncle
1: which means something music, right? Sure is
0: song and bracha right. is blessing. That's right. Blessed
1: music. Yes, that's, yes. that's at least how it was sold to me. Yes. Yeah. Blessed music. Yeah. That's good. And
0: I picked it out when I was in the hospital at 31 weeks with her because I was by myself for like long periods of time because this was in the middle of COVID and you were like limited as to the amount of time you could be there.
1: Yes. And you were held there for a while because of blood, blood pressure. pressure. Yeah. I was yeah. there
0: for three days. So I was literally Googling Hebrew names while I was in the hospital and that's when I picked it out.
1: Yeah. We picked her, I guess, English name pretty yeah, early on. I an, mean, even I think before she was conceived, we
0: picked out her English name before we got married.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been, it we, was we've had a we kind of granted we didn't tell anybody, but no. it was just kind of in our, yeah,
0: it was in our radar. Yeah. But her Hebrew name I picked out. Um, and we, you know, kind of going back to, you know, something we done with her is we had a very big naming baby naming for her. Um, so Our daughter was born in May of 2021, kind of, and still in the height of COVID. So, you know, we were far away from my family and we wanted to do a naming. So the January after she was born, we had a ridiculously large party at a restaurant for basically everyone we knew in Los Angeles and had... A, you know, a, a cantor do the naming, and we we zoomed, we zoomed people in from New York, and it was a really beautiful ceremony. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, David, who, you know, was one of her godparents who has since passed away, gave a really beautiful speech, and I have that video on my phone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we got to, uh, because girls don't go through a uh, bris...
0: Yeah, there's no ritual aspect to a girl's naming. So the cantor suggested um, a foot washing because when Sarah welcomes in the strangers, she washes their feet. So it's something that a lot of families have started to do when they have a female naming.
1: We did a ceremonial washing of her feet to welcome her into our family, which was cool. Yeah. And then we passed her along.
0: Yes, we passed her (laughs) around with everybody. And she was wrapped in a blanket that my grandmother, who I never got to meet, made. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is kind of like um, a thing that's, you know, been a tradition with us. Like um, my grandfather's tallest was was in our chuppah. You know, I think kind of going back to the question you asked earlier, a lot of what my family does is passing down ritual objects and saving things like that. We have a lot of items.
1: So to get away from the family a little bit, what are you passionate about? Like what makes you want to wake up and do things in the morning.
0: I'm very passionate about our daughter. I feel like I never wanted to be one of those people who was like, I'm a mother and that's my whole, you know, personality, but it has become a big part of it. I think partly because I've become active with her at the synagogue. So I'm known as her mother and we're together. Um, I'm very passionate about Holocaust education and history. And this is something I've been passionate about since I was a small child. My mother and father don't remember this, but there was an instance, I must've been like 10 or 11 and we were Barnes and Noble. And I was of course looking at the adult nonfiction section, the, the history section. And I was like, oh, I want this book. And it was about the Holocaust. And my mother said, why don't you get something a little bit happier, like about the Civil War, which is not a happy thing either, but maybe to her it was less traumatic for an 11 year old. But it's always been kind of something I've been interested in. I you know, read the Diary of Anne Frank when I... Probably was a little too young to read it.
1: Were you younger than Anne?
0: Yes. I was younger than she was when she wrote it.
1: I know. Is that like the metric? Like, you probably shouldn't read that book if you're younger than the author?
0: I don't know if that should be the metric. I think that I was maybe a little too young to understand the history of what was happening. I wasn't really versed in the history and what she was talking about, and I think that would have brought something extra to the experience. But I, I don't think I was too young to. Well, how old were you? I think I was eleven. Oh, well, maybe that's ten or eleven. Too
1: off. I mean, she was what thirteen. She, 14 was, ther- she when was She was thirteen when she yeah. got her diary, I
0: believe. I was maybe ten or eleven when I read it, and it was like a huge discussion about whether or not I would be able to. And looking back on it, I feel like there's nothing necessarily inappropriate in it. But maybe people thought that I would be scared with what she was talking about. So Holocaust education is something I'm very passionate about now, especially with this resurgence of extreme anti-Semitism and people throwing around words like genocide. I think it's super important. I think as there really aren't a lot of survivors left who were in the camps to speak about their experience, it's very important to kind of pick up. The mantle of that and continue their stories. It's important to talk about why it happened and the steps leading up to it. Because I think a lot of people, you know, know the final event, but they don't know what, you know, what decades of leading up to that was to recognize the signs of that happening again. So I think that's super important. Other than Holocaust education, which I feel like it honestly comes up almost every day in conversation is you know, with us, with yeah. us at least. <laughs>
1: um. No, I I will say this. I think what makes something like the Holocaust such a rich thing to study, even academically, is there are six million stories yeah. built into it. That it's not just there was one experience that every person who went through that experience experienced. Absolutely, there, there are. Six million individual experiences for every victim of who went through it.
0: I talked to a woman yesterday whose father was a Holocaust survivor and he was family basically hid out in forests and hi- hid in haystacks and he was four and um you know talking about their family basically just surviving fairly. And then, you know, I've talked to people who were in camps. My third grade Hebrew school teacher was in Auschwitz and dug the grave for her parents. And there's this really great Instagram account. It's a little dark, which, you know, is on par for me. It's called Angels of the Holocaust. And this person isn't Jewish. And I would love to talk to them about how they do their research. But every day they feature a different child who was killed in the Holocaust. They show pictures and tell a little bit about their life and their, their parents, maybe, or any siblings they had. So it just really drives home to me, and I see, you know, look at this every day, that they're these were real people and they all had different stories and you can't clump them together. And I think a lot of people tend to clump this, like, well, everybody was this and they all died in a gas chamber and every, most people died in Auschwitz. And I was like, there, yes, there were a lot of people who died in Auschwitz and a lot of people died in gas chambers, but there were a lot of different ways people died. There's a lot of different ways people survived. And I think that is one of the things I'm drawn to is there's so many different stories that I feel like there's an infinite amount of information to learn.
1: Well, it was what a little more now than five years ago. Uh, we went on our trip to Central Europe, yeah, and visited Auschwitz and visited Birkenau and Dach. visited yeah and Dachau. Visited Dachau. The sign, which I can't remember in the German, Arbeit
0: Mach frei. That I believe I'm saying that correct. Yeah, work will set you free. Work will
1: set you free. That was put as a euphemism that work yourself to death and then you'll be free. Of course, there are a lot of ways that people were. Tortured and suffered and eventually killed within these places and just within Europe during that era. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but I do think it makes it a fascinating subject and something that you can find parallels in all throughout human history from the ancients through the Middle Ages through, you know, mid American century history to, and you I know, all what, the way till today. I
0: think what makes it so fascinating. Is it's modern? You know, Poland was invaded the same year that Gone with the Wind came out,
1: and was it a
0: Yeah, so that happened that same year. It was in nineteen thirty nine. So it, it I means it's a long, it is a long time ago, but it's what we consider very modern. So you know, I, I had this memory of reading a book. I believe it was very much like this woman's father also hidden haystacks, and I remember at one point at the end of a chapter it said, and the year was 1943. I had literally forgotten it was the 1940s because of the way she was talking about it. it sounded almost medieval. Because, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, I'm also fascinated with the idea that in literally modern times this happened.
1: That's pretty recent. Yeah. Compared to crazy. a lot of other histories. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah.
0: Other things I'm passionate about. <laughs> yeah, other things. Well, other things I'm passionate about. I am passionate about dogs. Uh, we have a menagerie of dogs in this house. Yes, and
1: Nicole is a collector. I'm a
0: collector. And, you know, even today we were walking down the street and there was this beautiful great Dane. And I was like, look at that dog. I'm passionate about dogs. You know, we've done fundraisers. Our company has done fundraisers for dog rescues. I'm a big supporter of animal rescue. Um, I follow a lot of them on Instagram when I've donated money, you know, to different rescues. Um, I think rescue is so important. I'm passionate about other histories. I'm passionate about, I'm a huge Anglophile, you know, we went to England for the Jubilee. We went to London for the Jubilee. I dragged my then one-year-old and my... Yes, non- I
1: am not as much of an Anglophile. No. <laughs> so it was quite the experience, experience to be around <laughs> joyous, royal-loving Brits uh, as, you know... Carriages that you can't see anybody pass by. I know,
0: but we were there, though. We were there. And the British people on my tours are always so impressed that we went. And they kind of roll their eyes like, I wouldn't want to go. So I'm a huge Anglophile. I love British history. I went through a huge kind of Tudor obsessive period when I was 14. I love the crown.
1: Is that your Roman Empire?
0: It is my Roman Empire. Yeah, I know. I think the royal family is my royal empire,
1: Roman Empire. That's what you're the you're, royal family is my Roman Empire. I
0: have, I have specific jewelry that I own because Kate Middleton has it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of energy to put into a family, especially the way we treat them. You could consider it a human rights
0: violation. But you know who is a big supporter of Holocaust education survivors is King Charles. Well, he was know. actually just at a event for the 85th Anniversary of Kristallnacht. He uh, met with a bunch of older people who were in the Transport who were Holocaust survivors who escaped the Holocaust. And he wrote the foreword for a holo- a book that um, a woman and her grandson wrote about her experience in World War II. So he is a big supporter of Holocaust education Fun hmm. fact for you. Good to know. um So I'm a huge Anglophile. I love dogs. I love horror movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm passionate about these things.
1: I mean, every October we go through. Yes, a we we watch a horror, horror movie, movie marathon. Uh, we go through a
0: horror movie marathon. So yeah, yeah, I'm very passionate about all those things.
1: Speaking of things you're passionate about, why don't you tell me a little bit about your bat mitzvah?
0: Ooh, my bat mitzvah! So I was the first woman bat mitzvah on either side of my family, which isn't something I actually figured out in my brain until, in the moment. In the mo- until I w- met you, basically, like you, I think you asked me, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I am the first woman to have bat mitzvah." So I had a double tour portion. It was very long, and my synagogue wasn't very large, so you got the entire thing. You weren't sharing it with anybody. And I also had a very long Torah, so the preparation for it was a lot. Mm-hmm. But I went to Hebrew school twice a week, so i go to regular, like, secular day school, five days a week. And then it'd be either Tuesday or Thursday or Monday and Wednesday, and I would go for two hours. And... We'd learn Hebrew and we'd learn about the prayers. It was kind of in preparation for my bat mitzvah, and I went from the time I was in kindergarten until I was in seventh grade, twice mm-hmm. a week, and sometimes on Sundays. And a lot, you know, one of the things that was required of graduating, I guess, from each class is from each year is you had to go to a certain number of services. So you'd be required to go to like a certain number of Friday night or Saturday night services. So I was exposed to the services. And then I was also in the children's choir. So we would perform at concerts and in services. And then inevitably once a year, the like the class you were in would have like a Shabbat service they'd leave. So I was kind of, I mean, it wasn't like we went to services all the time, but, you know, I went regularly enough that I was very familiar with the prayers and the process of all that. Um, and I had my bat mitzvah when I was 13. It was March 13th, 1999. Mm. I thought that was cool because it was the 13th and I turned 13. I practiced a lot. I was very, took it very seriously. I had it memorized way before I needed to. There was no last minute with that. The ceremony was lovely. And my mom talks about how people didn't realize I could, because I basically like chanted the Torah portion and they didn't realize that I could sing. So, you know, she said that everybody was kind of, complimenting me and was really surprised by that. Um, I feel like every girl who had a bat mitzvah in the 90s kind of wore like the same outfit. And I've <laughs> noticed this on some. Social- what is this outfit? It's like a suit. <laughs> because I think a lot of these people were conser- were raised conservative and you had to cover your shoulders on the bima. So like there, w- it was like tights with these little heels and like this suit. Mine was like a white dress with a little white suit jacket. Mm. Uh, <laughs> You've seen I'm pic- sure
1: that caused conversations. You've
0: seen pictures of this. It wasn't an issue for me. It became more of an issue when my sister had her butt foot because she w- did not want to wear an outfit like that and there were a lot of discussions mm. about that. Um, but of course the party is the most important part as well to any 13 year old.
1: Well before we talk about the party, do you remember any of your
0: portion? No.
1: Like if I was like... If
0: you if you put it in front of me, I might be able to remember some of it.
1: But, like, off the top of your head, you couldn't just be like.
0: No. I probably uh, could. Rock, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't know. The... <laughs> no. No. I, I feel like they all start like that. They, so. <laughs> no, they all. <laughs> just cut this out here. You, you pseudo, like. What? Trope-y. Um I don't remember it, but I think if you put it in front of me, I could probably relearn it. But there was a good. Portion of time where I still remembered it, probably at least two years after.
1: Look, the only thing I can compare it to is in eighth grade, I had to memorize. It's not the same thing. A timeline for my eighth grade American history class, which I can basically still recite from memory.
0: How long was that timeline?
1: It was long. I mean, it how goes, long did it, it take from, to recite
0: the timeline?
1: Uh, like 40 minutes. like it Because if you did the entire thing, you, it, which we had to do by the end of the class, it was like we, everybody was broken into... It took
0: 40 minutes for you to recite this timeline.
1: You had to write it down No, fully. that's not the same thing. No, no, I'm just saying. You had to f- write it down fully. And then over about a two-week period, and there were about maybe 28, 30 kids in the class, he would have... Us come in in sections, and then we would have to. And as the other kids like waited outside, he would have us like recite certain sections, but we didn't know what section we it's were. It's not getting. the same so thing. You had to know the whole. I thing. get
0: what you're saying, but it's not the same thing because each i the tour portion was about ten minutes, which is extremely long for a tour portion. The half tour was a little bit shorter, so it would be like trying to remember twenty minutes of just straight monologue in another language while singing.
1: Yeah. It's like doing an aria, like an operatic yeah, aria. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So it's something you need to keep up with, but I think that it's something that I could definitely relearn. It would probably be in the back of my head somewhere. It's like riding a bike, like you'd, you'd yeah, see it and be yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do the trail there. I do remember yeah. going to other bar and and being upset at how short their portions were and kind of being like, well, that's ridiculous.
1: Okay, so now on to the most important part of the whole experience. Yes. The party. Yes, Which the party. I've learned is not just, you know, it's not like wedding where weddings can just be themed wedding.
0: No. Though I guess
1: some people just theme their bat mitzvah, bat mitzvah.
0: Yes, we have talked to some people who they were like, there was no theme. But mine was themed the 1950s. And it had been something I had chosen many years before because K-Earth 101 played a lot of 50s music.
1: And now they play the early 2000s. Please don't say that.
0: (laughs) Uh, and I loved 50s music and I loved poodle skirts and I loved, you know, kind of the whole 50s vibe. So the colors were turquoise, hot pink and black. Mm-hmm. And there was a checkerboard dance floor. And we had the same DJ company that did our wedding, did my bat mitzvah. And the mother of the owner is was my great aunt's friend. So people who went to the synagogue.
1: I feel like the 90s, every one and a half to two years went through every popular decade of the 20th century like became suddenly popular again all of a sudden Like I remember like flappers were really popular at one point and then it was like swing dance. And then it was was very
0: big in 1999 and 2000. So that was something that was also kind of a little bit of my bum. But it wasn't really the 1950s. And each table was named after a 1950s song. And there were like these plastic like records and the name of the song was written on it. And there were balloons and everybody's party favor was this. It was a cup, like a tumbler, like a glass tumbler that had Elvis on it that my mom had gotten at a gift show. And she filled it with malt balls and then put like this mesh on top of it and made it look like a sundae. Like put a straw on it. She's very crafty.
1: Your mom is very crafty. She's
0: very good at that kind of stuff. I think
1: that's my first memory of your mom was when I went over to your house the first time she was making things for you. Because your sister was in the band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, making as the wands. Dancer. Was she making yeah. wands? Yeah. She's making stuff. And I was just like, Oh it's such, there's a lot of crafty stuff. Yeah,
0: my mom's really good at that. So she yeah. made those favors. And I remember there was like an Elvis Barbie doll next to them that I think is still in the house somewhere. And we also <laughs> She also, we also got a picture taken of me dressed like a car hop and turned it into a cardboard cutout, which is still in my room. I might post a picture of that on my Instagram if you're curious as to what that looks like. (laughs) You can see a very, very thin 13-year-old Nicole dressed as a car hop. So the party was during the day. So my parents got a van that took all the kids from the synagogue to the venue, which was the country club my parents were members of. And that was really cool. I thought that was really cool. And my dress was this turquoise, it wasn't a poodle skirt, but it but it poofed out like a poodle skirt. And it had, I think, a Scotty on it instead of a poodle. And my mom's best friend, Gail, made it because she sews. And um, I loved that dress. I wore it for Halloween, I think, that year as well. So it was a
1: very 50s year.
0: It was a very 50s year. I enjoyed it. I feel like, though, with the this has kind of occurred with other events in my life, like prom or graduation. I remember we were cleaning up as we were leaving and I'm like, that's it? I was like, that's it. I was like, I've been studying for this my entire life. I've been playing this party for a year with my mom and that's it. Well, what's weird is my bat mitzvah was in March and Hebrew school graduation was until June. So it's kind of like this weird, like I had my bat mitzvah, but I'm still going to Hebrew school type thing. I will say, and I've never told you this, I have stress dreams about not being eligible to graduate from Hebrew school.
1: Wow! I am
0: gonna be thirty-eight years old, and I still have like dreams that I have not done the coursework to graduate from Hebrew school. So I don't know. We can unpack that in a different time. Do do
1: people get like Hebrew school senioritis? Basically,
0: I I, kind of, but I have like
1: if you bar bat mitzvah early, then and you have to continue through the rest of the year, you're like, well, I already did it. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt
0: for a few months. I was kind of like, well, you know, but I still weirdly. (laughs) dreams about not being eligible to graduate which I have a diploma and there was a ceremony so I definitely did it's kind of like how you have those high school stress dreams even though you're in your 30s Yeah,
1: I I sometimes still have them where I have to go back to school and I'm like oh my god I'm naked and I have to take this class to graduate. Mine
0: mine is is I'm always a science credit short of being Mm. able to graduate high school
1: well do you have like a distinct memory of joy at your bat mitzvah party?
0: Yes (laughs) I, there there was this, like a mix or a mashup of 1950s songs. It was like after my grand entrance. I just remember dancing and having like a really great time. And um, I remember my favorite song at the time was Pretty Fly for a White Guy. I'm dating myself.
1: Uno, does tres, tres, cuatro, cinco, cinco, cinco seis. Yes, yeah. I remember
0: dancing to that and just being excited to dance to my favorite offspring song at my bot mitzvah. mm
1: I mean, Americana was a very influential album.
0: Oh, and another thing. Because it was a daytime... We weren't religious, but because it was a daytime party on Saturday, we couldn't do a candle lighting. For those of you that don't know what this is, basically, there are candles, and you call people up who are important to you, like your relatives or your friends, and they light a candle with you, and there's supposed to be 13 candles. But we couldn't light flames because it was still Shabbat. So my mom, being crafty and smart, she took a picture, and I think it was like a like a picture of me when I was younger and basically had it put on foam board and cut it, it was cut into puzzle pieces. So there was, mm. I would put the puzzle piece on the, like another board. So I still got to do kind of like a bringing everybody up. And when you brought everybody, so everybody up, they, the DJ would play a song. And of course, when you brought all your friends up, they played the friends theme. Um, so that was also fun was, and what we did when I called people up is we wrote a little poem about the person So that was kind of fun creating those poems as well.
1: Is that a, I guess, a a valley bat mitzvah thing? or The puzzle piece thing? No, no, no. The like little poems to bring peace. I feel like in my adult life, I've now been to many, many bar and bat mitzvahs. Uh, either as a performer or, or as a guest, as a guest, and I think that trend tends to. Well,
0: I clearly started it. I don't be know. Around <laughs> it, I don't know. I was like, is that I don't just- know. I do have a friend that had a bot mitzvah after me that also did the puzzle piece thing because it it was a. They nice, liked it. On they yours. liked it. It was a nice workaround, I think, for the for the candle thing because a lot of people had daytime parties because they were cheaper. Yeah. Um, So I don't know if I clearly started a trend in the valley or it's just something that my mom had seen someone else do. But it was kind of fun writing the poems.
1: So what do you love most about being Jewish?
0: Okay, I can kind of sum... What I love most about being Jewish into an experience, I love the Jewish joy. And I love how I love that feeling I get when the horror starts playing and everyone gets up to go dance and just the joy and excitement people feel. You look at people's faces when they're like having so much fun, like as the horror starts, and I feel like that encompasses the Jewish joy that I feel. I love the musical aspect of Judaism. I think it's one of the things that kind of got me interested in music and performing is temple and exposure to that. And I think I talk about being in the children's choir in the other thing. Um, But I love the community feeling. I love that, you know, I went to this march, you know, yesterday. I didn't know anybody on the bus I was with. I spent the entire day with this woman I never met before. And we connected and, you know, we kind of took care of each other. And I love that regardless of where you are, you can relate to people on a certain level because of a shared experience in being Jewish. Knowing that, what
1: inspired you to start this podcast?
0: In my journey to being more observant and being more involved with the synagogue as an adult, I was trying to, you know, figure out what I wanted to do, where I fit in in all this, what does being Jewish mean to me? So, you know, is any good person in 2023 does, I turned to social media and the internet and was looking for maybe influencers or podcasts that would, you know, give me some insight on what it's like to be a modern Jewish woman living in a major city in 2023. Who's a mother. Who's a mother. And it kind of fell into two categories. There are people who are more like lifestyle. So they're, you know, showing cool fashion and going to parties and they're very pretty and they're like also Jewish and you know there's an aspect of that and there were some people who are you know mothers who were kind of doing things like this how we decorate for the holidays but you know that wasn't really what I was looking for and then the other thing I found was a lot of people who were like I'm orthodox this is what orthodox Jews do this is what I believe and I think there's a very important place for that and I think it's important to normalize Hasidic and Orthodox Jews as normal people, because I feel like a lot of people see them as like, you know, come look at the freaks. And I think it's. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely
1: a further othering. A fetishing, almost. Yeah, fetishing. Uh, Anybody who lives an extreme lifestyle of any kind, we want to make a, you know, reality show about it. If they're, you know, uh, conservative anything. Yeah. I mean, uh, or at least hyper-religious of any kind. People are
0: intrigued by that. So we have our influencers who like that's their whole thing and that's great. And then we have our ultra-religious people talking about their religion. But there really wasn't anything in the middle. There wasn't people talking about different ways to be Jewish. The podcasts tend to be about Torah or, you know, they're like super intellectual. We're talking with triple PhD about anti-Semitism. And um, that wasn't really what I was looking for either.
1: Look, I, I think there's a, probably a really important place for hyper-academic there is. looks at I agree. any sort of world issue. And to be honest, I'd rather listen to somebody with a triple PhD when it comes to certain subjects than somebody's hot take on something.
0: No, I agree. But But that wasn't necessarily what I was looking for.
1: You know, again, an hyper-academic exploration of something isn't necessarily a daily experience.
0: No, I wanted, I wanted to kind of look into the different ways to be Jewish. And I really wanted to hear people's stories. I feel like, You know, you have 100 Jews, you have 200 different stories and ways of observing, and I wanted to learn about people's experiences and, you know, learn about what being Jewish meant to them and see if it was different or similar to my experience. I feel like a lot of what I grew up thinking was normal was normal specifically my family and my synagogue, not necessarily to conservative Judaism or Judaism in general. So, you know, kind of figuring out what's normal and, you know, maybe reinforcing or challenging what I believe. And that's one of the reasons I want to start this podcast. I've also, even in the short time we've been talking to people, made connections with people who are amazing. I've learned more about people I already know. And I feel like I'm really interested in people's stories. So this is a way for me to learn about people's stories and share their stories.
1: Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, I don't think you or I doing the you know editing for this uh, are going to ever strive for perfection. You know, we're never going to be striving to say this is the one and only way to do anything.
0: And that's, I think, one of the things I love about Judaism, that even within my research about, you know, two different types of observance of Hanukkah. You know, I'll talk about, for example, the way people light the candles. Different. Didn't know that. Very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that.
1: Well, I think it's important to say there isn't really a right or wrong way. To do one or the other. Yeah. It's just, you know, different. these are the different variations of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. It's important. Who do you think ultimately this podcast is for then? Is it only for... Jews kind of exploring what you're at, or is it for anybody who's curious about this stuff?
0: I think it's for anybody and everybody. I spoke with a woman who is not Jewish. Her husband is culturally Jewish, not religious at all. Both her daughters are dating Jewish men and are probably going to be converting, and she was like, I will have Jewish children and Jewish grandchildren. I don't really know much about this. It's for people who grew up like me, who maybe are finding their way back to religion. It's for people who aren't religious, who are interested in the cultural aspect. It's for people who are curious about one of their favorite influencers or jews that i'm interviewing it's for people like my parents uh who you know are maybe trying to figure out what being jewish means today i think it's for people who are interested in converting to judaism i think it's for non-jews who have no idea about judaism and are maybe looking to break the stereotypes they've heard i think it's for everybody and i also think it's for people who just like to hear people's stories you know there are people i love Stories. I love people's stories. I think they're people who just like hearing about other human experience. And I think it's for them too. We're also gonna have some informational episodes in addition to a lot of interviews. So I think if people are looking for a a way to learn about things like Hanukkah or, you know, a movie I'm gonna talk about that I think is very anti Semitic, even though it's about the Holocaust, things like that, you know, maybe things that, you know, aren't talked about very much.
1: Um, Well, our background background and what we've done since being actors and performers is we own a historical walking tour company, which gives us kind of a direct voice to travelers and to people exploring these cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia and Toronto. And by kind of exploring these cities, we get to talk about the history, get to talk about the people, the cultures that are in them, doing these kind of more informational episodes yeah. that are diving into maybe one aspect of Judaism mm-hmm. or one aspect of a holiday or a, a film that kind of reflects on that, what we do on our daily basis on our bread yeah. and butter. That's kind of what yeah. we constantly, I mean, we've learned how to now research a lot of this yeah. history, a lot of this stuff in a really short amount of time so we can pump it out to the masses as, you know, as, succinctly and interestingly as possible
0: yeah so i definitely think there's episodes that are we'll be able to do that as well so it's going to be a mix of informational episodes and just interview episodes as well
1: yeah and we'll see how it evolves i mean maybe this is the format right now it might change to something else later on uh, yeah as we kind of learn and evolve into doing other things yeah is there anything else you like doing in your spare time
0: I am an avid reader when I have time. I love to read trashy romance novels. It's like a palate cleanser where I don't really have to think and I know how it's going to end. I like reading... I read a lot of nonfiction. I feel like there was an entire year where all I read was books on Ellis Island that my brain kind of exploded a little bit. <laughs> I I read a lot of nonfiction about New York. I read a lot of nonfiction about the Holocaust and World War II. I read a lot of nonfiction about UK history. Uh, I watch... Uh, historical dramas where nothing happens as you like to say. Um, I think it's because I
1: (laughs) they cross the street.
0: I know. I think it's because I have anxiety and I feel like it makes me feel better. These are like sometimes low stakes problems that might've been big problems in you know, 1915, but like now it's not that big of a deal. So it makes me feel kind of calm. And even sometimes like rewatching those things, which I've read is something that people with anxiety do a lot is they'll reread or rewatch things. Um, what else? I've heard I, that's like an ADHD It is. E Anything. An, yeah. Where, and anxiety.
1: You know, you recommend a show to somebody and they're like, I don't have time for that. But then they'll binge watch something they've already seen before. But yeah. when they say they don't have time for it, it means I don't have time to like pay attention to and it. And like
0: mentally digest it. Yeah. 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 I will re watch a lot of stuff. So I watch a lot of historical dramas. I We travel a lot when we have the time. I love the travel. We take. A ridiculous amount of tours when we travel, not only because of what we do, but because I truly do think it's one of the best ways to learn a city. I'm
1: sure there are people who travel to New York yearly see more theater than we do. Yeah, and like so a week, I don't know, we go to theater.
0: We go to, I go to, <laughs> when we have time, we go to theater. I like going and seeing shows. It's just... I feel like when we first moved to New York, I was like, I'm going to see all the Broadway shows. And then we were poor. And then when we weren't poor, I'm like, I don't have time. And, you know, it becomes a huge event. So I think when there's something I'm excited to see, we go see it. I think
1: the problem with living in New York with Broadway right next door is we always think Broadway is going to be right next door. Yeah.
0: So there's shows that I wanted to see that close. And I'm like, oh, well, guess that's not happening. You know, whereas like when I used to visit, I'm like, I'm going to see these shows, buy tickets ahead of time. It's going to be a big deal. Yes, I have some of them as guests where they'll see a show pretty much every night. And I'm like, oh, I heard that was good. It's been around for three years, but I haven't seen it. You know, that sort of thing.
1: So since it's the first episode, this actually, their first exposure to this, though, this kind of came about by Nicole and I talking about how these shows and these episodes would operate. And we just thought it would be fun with the interview episodes. Do a little return to something I grew up with, and I know Nicole used to watch when she was younger of uh, The Actors Studio Mm -hmm. starring James Lipton. If you ever watched the actor's studio, James used to end most of his episodes, or it was a big core part of it Mm -hmm. with a series of questions. And they were always the same questions. Or a director. They were always the same questions. And these questions usually gave you some insight just on the human and the person and kind of what was important to them. So we've created a bit of a ripoff version of yes. it.
0: Yes, Jewish actor studio questions. The
1: Jewish version of the actor studio questions. Our first question is What is your favorite Yiddish
0: word? Schmuck. And I probably use it at least once a day.
1: Yeah, schmuck's a good one. What is your favorite
0: Jewish holiday? I feel like I should say Hanukkah, but I really like Passover. I like Passover because I have very fond memories of celebrating that with my family.
1: Do you have a favorite food item that you would eat at
0: Passover? Potato league soup. I don't even need to think about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's kind of a you family thing. Your, we, your great oh aunt has the potato, that recipe. Potato
0: league soup. Yes. Yeah. I ah. would over the matzo ball soup.
1: I know. Matzah ball is more traditional. Yeah. Well, there would be
0: two options. It would be either potato leek or matzah ball. And like whoever was kind of like waiting on the tables would go around and ask, always potato leek soup.
1: Well, the potato leek soup's good. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's solid really soup. Really good. Yeah. If you had a bat mitzvah today, what would the theme
0: be? Travel.
1: Mm. Every table with would like be a like different a different place.
0: place I visited and like place cards would be like passports. And I don't, I like it'd be very cute. Yeah.
1: What other profession, other than what we already do, would you want to attempt?
0: Something in the medical field, like be a doctor. Yeah. You know, something easy like that.
1: A type of, uh, <laughs> do you have any type of doctor, medical doctor you'd want to be?
0: Maybe a pathologist.
1: Okay. So like Dr. House? And you'd be Yeah. Like going in and be like, you have this. Yeah. Give me your Vicodin.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe without the Vicodin action. Yeah. <laughs>
1: This is the last question. If heaven is real and God is there to welcome you, what would you like them to say?
0: Everyone is waiting for you.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Nicole, for sharing your insights of who you are. And I'm very excited to start this journey with you of uh, creating these fun episodes. Uh, Hopefully people will get joy from them. Uh, hopefully people will start listening. Yeah. Who knows? Tell I your mean, friends. Tell your friends. Tell your family. You know, hide your kids. Hide your wife.
0: You know. <laughs> like what you just heard, subscribe, and you can make sure that you don't miss any of our episodes. You can check out our Patreon, where you'll have access to special episodes and offers. And I'm also on Instagram at in the City if you want to follow along with my everyday life.